0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning and welcome to today's virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. Today's program was coordinated by the club's member-led Middle East Forum. I'm Ben Akshay and I'll be your moderator for today's program called America and Iran. And it is my great pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker today. Dr. John Ghazvinian is an author, historian, and former journalist specializing in the history of U.S.-Iran relations. His latest book, America and Iran, a history from 1720 to the present, is a comprehensive survey of the bilateral relationship and based on years of archival research in both Iran and the United States, which he has been working on since 2008. He's also the author of UNTAP, The Scramble for Africa's Orth, as well as a co-editor. He has written for such publications as Newsweek, The Nation, The Sunday Times, and The Huffington Post, and has taught modern Middle East history at a number of colleges and universities in the Philadelphia area. He earned his doctorate in history at Oxford University and was the recipient of a public scholar fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Dr. Rasmim is currently the Executive Director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Once again, I just want to go over the format for the program. We will listen to our distinguished speaker, and uh, after that, we'll have some time for questions and answers. Thank you for joining us today, and once again, it's my pleasure to have you on board today at the Commonwealth Club. Please.
1: Thank you very much uh, for that kind introduction. Thank you, Banefsha, and thank you to everyone at the Commonwealth Club for hosting me today. It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, a pleasure that could only be exceeded by the pleasure of being with you in person in San Francisco, which unfortunately we don't, uh, we don't have available to us at the moment. Uh, but I look forward to a robust and interesting conversation. Uh, I will keep my opening remarks quite brief, uh, 15, 20 minutes, um, give a little bit of an overview of the new book. And uh, then I just look forward to your questions uh, and the conversation. So uh, the book is a history of U.S.-Iran relations, of course. And it's not the first time anyone's done a history of U.S.-Iran relations, uh, and it won't be the last time. This is a subject that uh, is uh, evergreen. It comes up from time to time. It's always with us. Um, I wanted to. I suppose I should start a little bit about how this book came about and why, and what I was trying to do with the book that I hope was a little bit different. So I'm trained as a historian. Uh, I worked as a journalist for a number of years. My first book was a work of journalism, but I wanted to get back into history for this book uh, about twelve years ago uh, when I first started working on it, um, and. I thought I really want to work on Iran and I want to work on something historical. I don't know exactly what, and then it just seemed like to me the obvious thing was, well, what about a, a, a comprehensive history of U S Iran relations? Um, and I was, you know, I was aware that other people had written on the, on the subject, but, you know, I was trying to think, well, what can I do that, that hasn't been done? Um, and there were several things that I felt were perhaps missing. Uh, one of the things I noticed immediately about other histories of U S Iran relations was that, uh, in, in some ways, they reflected the same problem that we have with anything that has to do with a conversation about Iran and America, which is that there's this real uh, divide between Iran and America, and that is reflected in the way the history is told. Uh, specifically, every American historian who has written on this subject has primarily used American sources, uh, American archives, and every Iranian uh, historian has used pre- predominantly Iranian archives uh that the reasons for that are very obvious the, you know you're not able as an Iranian scholar you're not going to be able to pick up and just come to America to do archival research easily and vice versa um and this has reflected a certain uh skewed perspective I suppose uh in that in both countries historians are looking at this from their own perspective of their own archives well why does this matter well I you know One of the things I noticed is, especially some of the American historians that have written about this, and there there are some terrific histories of U.S.-Iran relations. I highly recommend James Bill's book from the late 1980s, for example. Um, But all of them begin somewhere around 1940. And it makes sense why they do that. Because before uh, Pearl Harbor, before 1941, uh, the U.S. was an isolationist power. The U.S. was not interested in far-flung parts of the world like Iran uh Iran might as well have been Antarctica as far as anyone in the state department was concerned there were no critical american interests in that part of the world um, but everything changed after pearl harbor us you know began to develop a far more interventionist uh and, and you know kind of internationalist approach to its foreign affairs um so it makes sense that America, that american historians would look at the period before that and say well we don't need to really worry about that it's not really important us wasn't really interested But I think that's an interesting way of approaching history. Because what are you saying when you say that? Uh, You're basically saying that the history of U.S.-Iran relations only begins when the U.S. begins to take an interest. I don't think that's a great way to approach the history because that's not looking at also the Iranian perspective. What was immediately apparent to me and very interesting as I did the research for this book is that the Iranians, dating back to the 1850s, were very, very interested in the U.S. One Iranian government after another, from the 1850s until the 1940s, wanted to get the U.S. more involved and more interested in Iran's affairs uh, as a way to kind of uh, balance out some of the pressures that Iranian governments were feeling, especially from Britain and from Russia. The U.S. was... Didn't really reciprocate this, but the fact that for almost a century the Iranians are very interested in cultivating a better relationship with the United States seems to me just as important a part of the story, and it's the part that we tend to leave out uh, when we tell the story uh, here in the U.S. The very first disagreement that Iran and the U.S. ever had—this is surprising to me when I first came across it—and it might be surprising to some of you—the very, very first disagreement between the U.S. and Iran took place in the 1850s. And it was related to the two countries' first attempts to establish diplomatic relations with each other. So in 1851, Iran and the U.S. began negotiations for what would eventually become a treaty of friendship, commerce, and navigation between the two countries. It took five years to negotiate. It took longer to negotiate that deal than it took to negotiate the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. And that's incredible to me. Why would it take – what on earth would Iran and America be disagreeing about for five years in the 1850s? Well, it turns out there were a lot of sticking points uh, when they were trying to negotiate this first treaty. But one of the most interesting ones to me, and I hope to you as well, was that the Iranians wanted the U.S. more involved in their affairs, and the Americans didn't want to interfere with Iran's business too much. Iran actually requested American warships, the purchase of American warships, manned by American sailors. Iran requested the Stars and Stripes to fly from Iran's own shipping in the Persian Gulf as a way to send a message to the British, who were very strongly positioned in the Persian Gulf, to say, look, we have this new alliance with the United States, so don't mess with us, right? The U.S., didn't like to get involved, very you know, isolationist, uh, no entangling alliances, responded by saying, No way, we can't get involved in this. We don't want to get involved in your business. Your business is your business. That's where it began. That was the first political diplomatic exchange between, on a formal level between Iran and the United States. That's where relations began. That was the first disagreement between the two countries. It is incredible, I think, for us sitting 170 years later to realize, to absorb the idea that the first disagreement these two countries had, Iran wanted the U.S. more involved in its business, and the U.S. said, no, we don't want to get involved. How do we get from there to here? Well, when you start the story in the 1940s, you don't, get, you don't look at that. You don't ask those questions. You don't get answers to those kinds of things. But I think that is just as essential as a part of the story, is how is it that for almost a century, Iranians were so interested in the United States and the U.S. seemed kind of standoffish, and that made the U.S. even more appealing uh, to, the, to, to Iran. Right? So this is the kind of thing that I think you miss when you only use U.S. archives or when you begin the story more recently. But I think there are other things that you miss that are just as important. And one of them is this. You know, I believe very strongly in the uh, importance of history in the ability of history to liberate us from difficult situations, to, to, to inform us, uh, to help us understand how we got from, here, from one place to another. But, you know, I think one of the frustrations uh, I think one has as a historian of US, of something like U.S.-Iran relations uh, is this. Most people are at least somewhat aware that the U.S. has a very, very bad relation with, uh, relationship with Iran. It doesn't really have a relationship with Iran. The uh, U.S. broke off ties with Iran in 1980 during the hostage crisis. Uh, and so things are very bad. I think most people have some sense of that. So as a historian of U.S.-Iran relations, one of the first things that anyone ever says to you, oh, well, help us understand how things got so bad. Break this down for us. Whose fault is it? Where did the problems begin? What, why did we get here? Why did things go so badly? How? That's a perfectly reasonable question to be asking. But I think it's an interesting question because in a way, embedded within that question, implicit within that question, is another question, which is just as interesting to me, which is, if things got so bad, if we're taking it as a, for granted that things are so bad and that the history has to help us understand why things got so bad, then surely what you're implying is that at some point, things were pretty good. And if that's the case... How did that happen? How did, things, if, how did things go right in the first place if things have gone so wrong? That's a question that I think historians never, never ask when it comes to the history of U.S.-Iran relations. It's not just about, it shouldn't, in my opinion, be just about how did it all go so wrong. Well, how, how did it go so right in the first place? Did it all go right? Was there some sort of golden age of U.S.-Iran relations? The short answer is I think that's debatable. I think you could make the case for the early 20th century, the 1910s, 20s, 30s, maybe 1940s, as a sort of golden age of U.S.-Iran relations. But even then, it's kind of complicated. But it's interesting that we never talk about that. We want to know how did it all go to hell? You know, one of the one of the very you know, good books that was written in the early 80s about the history of U.S.-Iran relations was called uh, paved, with good, paved with Good Intentions. You know that expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? But this, this is the, the sort of mentality that we approach the subject with, right? How did it all, it all go to hell? Well, you know, how did it you know, how did it go well in the first place? I think it's just as interesting because it takes us away from something that I think is really destructive, which is the blame game. Like everything else when it comes to U.S.-Iran relations, the history is used, I think, far too often as a weapon, as a, as a way to blame people that we don't like. Whether you want to side with Iran or whether you want to side with the U.S., whether you're more critical of the Islamic Republic or whether you're more critical of U.S. foreign policy, shapes the way that you filter this history for yourself. You focus on who started it. uh, Who was really at fault? And traditionally, there have been two events that people throw around, you know, almost like clubs to kind of beat each other with. One, of course, is the hostage crisis at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran from 1971 to 1981, so 1979 to 1981, which many of you might remember, uh, where there was a a revolution in in Iran, Iran had a very pro-American government under the Shah, the king, uh, at the time. Uh, but he, would, he had become very unpopular, and there was a large revolution against his uh, his regime. Uh, and in the process, uh, the U.S. gave uh, refuge to the deposed Shah, and that angered the revolutionaries who stormed the U.S. embassy in Tehran. And some of these radicalized students took uh, 52 American hostages, uh, and, uh, captive in their embassy uh, for what ended up becoming a standoff of of over a year. For a lot of Americans, that's where it begins. That's the original sin, right, Uh, that everything seemed kind of okay until that point. For Iranians, it's 1953. It's the CIA. It's when the CIA gave its backing to a coup against a very, very popular prime minister in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, who had tried to nationalize the Iranian oil industry uh, make the oil industry work for the Iranian people rather than for the British oil company that owned the, the, the company at the time uh, and had complete control of Iran's oil. Uh, and the British managed to convince the Americans, the Eisenhower administration, to, uh, to back a coup, that, a violent coup that actually overthrew the, the, the prime minister, and that angered a whole generation of Iranians and in many ways gave rise to kind of backlash 25 years later, 26 years later in the Iranian revolution. These two events are always thrown around as a kind of accusations, right? Oh, America started it in 1953. The Iran started, you know, took hostages in 1979. No, that's the real problem. I want to get us away from this way of looking at history. History is not a weapon. History is not something to beat your opponents with. History is not a, a courtroom drama. It's not a, a boxing match. I think, quite, the, if we can stop thinking about who we're going to blame, history can really liberate us from this kind of trap that we're in because one of the first things you realize when you look at the deep deep history of u.s- iran relations going back a couple of centuries is that for the overwhelming majority of their their history these two countries have shared an incredible level of mutual fascination mutual admiration even a kind of mutual infatuation or idealization and that's pretty extraordinary and that is why i started in 1720 Because that choice itself may seem eccentric, right? Why go back that far? The very first diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Iran were in the 1850s, as we just said. The very first people-to-people exchanges were in the 1830s, when uh, Presbyterian Protestant missionaries came from the U.S. to Iran uh, to proselytize uh, Iran's Christian population, as well as to build schools and clinics and so on. So why not just start there? Like a lot of you know, I mean, that's that would be a reasonable place. Why start a century before that in 1720? because I want to get at something deeper than just the politics. I want to get at this, the, the mentality that each country had even before they came into contact, what they thought of each other, what their preconceived notions were. Because you know as well as I do, when you, have, when you meet someone for the first time, and maybe if you bump into them randomly, that's different, but if you are told about someone and then you meet them, you have it already coming in with a preconceived notion. So that prehistory of a relationship is also important to me. And I think it also gets us out of that political trap where we think to ourselves, okay, well, what do these countries think about each other You know, when they didn't know that much about each other? I would say they still don't know much about each other, but when they really didn't know anything about each other, what do they think? And what is that baggage, that mental baggage that they bring with them? Well, here's what's interesting, right? Because I talked about this atmosphere of mutual fascination, mutual idealization. That's where it begins. It begins in the 1720s, of all things, on the American side. And the Iranian side begins a bit later. And I can see I'm running out of time, so I'll keep this very short and maybe just stick with the American side for the moment. This absolutely blew my mind, right? When I started looking at American newspapers from the 1720s, published in places like Philadelphia and Boston, there had been no newspapers really published regularly in North America before around 1719, 1720, very sporadically. But they, they started appearing reg- regularly, especially in Philadelphia and Boston around the 1720s. And I, you know, I did a quick search when I was starting my research for this way back in 2007 and plugged in the, the word Persia to see you know if they talked about Iran or Persia, as they would have called it. Well, this amazed me. Not only did the American newspapers talk about Persia, they were obsessed with Persia. The American Weekly Mercury, a newspaper published in Philadelphia, sometimes would have 25 to 30% of its newspaper was consumed with Iran, with Persia. They I even came across a headline, a headline at the very top of the newspaper once, in one, one week that said, We regret that we have no news about the situation in Persia. That was headline news in America in the 1720s. We have no news from Iran this week. I and mean, that amazed me, and it probably amazes you. But it gets even worse, it gets even more crazy. Not only were the Amer- newspapers consumed with Iran, but they were overwhelmingly, vocally pro-Iranian. Why? I'll be very, very brief, and then I'll wrap you up here so we can have our Q&A. Um, basically, big news story of its day in 1722, which just happened to be the big international news story of the day, was that the Persian Empire uh, was collapsing. Now, there have been many Persian empires, but the Safavid dynasty was uh, collapsing. There was a massive revolt from the east by, by the Afghans, by Mahmoud Hotaki, um, and the Americans assumed So this was this great, great, glorious empire. And and so this was a big news story, right? It was being sacked by Afghans in the East. Um, The Americans assumed that because the Afghans were Sunni and the Iranians were Shia, that the Afghans were being secretly supported by the Ottoman Empire, which was also Sunni. Now, this was not actually the case. So this was the very, very first time that the American media completely misunderstood a a major news event in the Middle East and decided to overwhelmingly take one side and simplify the whole thing for its leadership that was happening 300 years ago right they believed that there was this collusion between the ottoman empire and the afghans and because the ottomans were the big evil empire of the day remember from your school history the crusades the ottomans right the holy wars over jerusalem and so on this has gone back centuries uh and christian europe and just 40 years earlier in 1683 the ottomans had had come to the borders of Vienna, right, to the gates of Vienna. So for Christian Europeans, the Ottomans, the Turks, were the great threat of the day, the evil empire of the day. The terrible Turk, the barbarous Turk, they all had the inhuman Turk. They had all these kind of uh, ways of talking about uh, the Ottomans. And they knew that the Ottomans had a rivalry with the Persians. And so it was like, oh, uh, the, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, classic you know, kind of concept that we still employ today in the Middle East. But that wasn't the only reason. And I know I'm running out of time. So I'll wrap this up. But there was also a religious dimension to it. Uh, These were Puritans in New England. Right. And the only understanding they had of the of, of the Middle East was from the Bible. Well, Iran looks very good in the Bible in uh, in Ezra, chapter 1, Cyrus the Great, the emperor of, of Persia, frees the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. and So they really like that. The three magi, the three wise men from the east, those were magi is plural of Magus, which is a Zoroastrian priest. They were probably Iranians, right? So Iran looks very good in the Bible. On top of that, the Ottoman Empire at this point is in possession of all the holy sites around Jerusalem and so on. Whereas the, the, the Persians are this sort of oriental kingdom, this fantasy exotic kingdom slightly to the east of the Ottomans and I call my opening chapter east of Eden because these Puritans believed that the Garden of Eden was somewhere near Mosul in northern Iraq today and it was just before the the mountains the Zagros Mountains into Persia so they believed that the Persian Empire literally began just to the east of the last of the uh, religious biblical sites just to the east of Eden and so it was this harmless exotic kingdom kind of you know uh, uh, no threat to them militarily religiously in any other way and they idealized it. That mental baggage they brought with them when they had a the, hundred years earlier, when they had their first contacts. So the first Presbyterian missionaries who went to Iran, Justin Perkins, in 1834, he described his first first time he set eyes on Iran. He described he called it Edenic. Edenic was the word he used, literally like the Garden of Eden, like a paradise. This matters because I would argue that this mentality remained right through the 1970s. Those of you who might remember the way Iran was presented in the U.S. before the Iranian Revolution of 1979 was this pro-American Shah, this this exotic, glamorous, wealthy kingdom that that was friendly to the West, that was not like the Arab world, right? So the Arabs had kind of replaced the Ottomans now in this kind of, you know, fantasy. Um, But in the 1970s, when Americans looked at the, the East, they saw Arab socialism, uh, Arab uh, wars with Israel, uh, anti-Americanism, this sort the Arab oil embargo, all these things they didn't like. But just to the east was this Shah of Iran, right? So I think these preconceived notions really matter. And I'll just very briefly say that the Iranian version of this started about 100 years later, about in the 1860s, uh, for reasons that we talked about. They saw the U.S. as a kind of anti-imperialist power, a country that had come to power in a revolution against the British Empire that understood the plights of, that didn't interfere in other countries' affairs. And this is why they first became interested in the U.S. So it was almost like a parallel. Just the U.S. had this kind of East of Eden approach to the to Iran. Iran was like a friendlier, less threatening version of the, of the, of the Muslim world. The U.S. was a less evil, threatening, imperialistic version of the West uh, for uh, Iran. Uh, this is where all of this begins. You know, and I think that's, where I, you know, I'll sort of leave it there, um, you know, uh, but I'll, and I'll sort of open it up uh, for there for, to Banafsheh. But I'll just say one final quick thing. i have just reminded it of, you know, in some of those newspapers from the 1720s, they would actually ref- they would ex- try to explain to American readers the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam. And they would say that the Shia are better because they're less Muslim. They're heretics. They even described the rivalry between the Ottomans and the Persians. They called it a holy war between Muslims and Persians which is such an interesting way of describing it, right? as if Persians are somehow not Muslim. They really believed that this was like the lesser of two evils. And the Iranians felt the same way about America. They liked to, the idea of learning from the West, the progress that the West was making, but they didn't like the imperialism of Britain and Russia. So they thought the U.S. was a slightly more appealing version of that. That's how the two countries first found each other. Um, and I think that's just as interesting as anything else. Okay, I'll stop there, and I, I welcome your questions and your conversation. Thank you very
0: much. I'd like to remind our audiences that this is a virtual Commonwealth Club program and it's called America and Iran, and that we'd like to invite you to also visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org to find out more about upcoming events and member-led forums. Having said that, it's time for the question and answer period, and we have quite a number of large questions to cover. And... um, We'd like to um, just usually give the the floor first to the moderators. I'd like to abuse my position, if I may, and uh, ask a couple of questions. You carry us through your book, which I have read, and it's right here behind me, um, through four seasons of the relationship between America and Iran, uh, including spring, the summer, and a fall, autumn, and a winter. And I actually have um, several um, flowers around me to at least symbolize the current winter, a winter flower that that isn't that is dominating the relationship between US and Iran and perhaps a spring uh, symbolized by a violet. Do you foresee a spring coming in this uh, relationship, which is largely misunderstood and um, which. Um, as you yourself demonstrate throughout the book and in your uh, wonderful talk today, has gone through a couple of poignant reminders that there are things that bind the two countries, but at the same time, through a number of asynchronosities that seem to separate the two nations, the two people from each other. And so much of your book describes the relationship between people and not just two states. So I want. With that in mind, for you to tell us if we can anticipate a spring,
1: yeah, thank you for that question. That is actually uh, in fact, the epigraph to the book, the quote at the beginning uh, is a is a poem from Hafez, the a great Persian, the beloved Persian fourteenth century poet uh, that basically uh, uh, it, it sort of says you know when the when the lingering sorrow of separation lifts, the nightingale will tear back into the garden." Uh, uh, its throat filled with song, and I really like that image because it implies the, the the possibility of a renewal of the the end to this long dark winter of mutual hatred it can come to an end um, uh, because we know that what always follows winter is spring, uh, and so you're right. I did break it, this book down into these four seasons, and obviously the winter has been long and it's been difficult. It's been forty years of mutual hostility. Um, but I'm very much a believer in the fact that it can, it, things can change. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I'm, not, I'm realistic. I don't think that somehow you're going to wake up tomorrow and, just, and you know, hear that you know, Biden has flown to Tehran and, you know, and they're signing a, a, you know, a friend, you know, t- friendship treaty. Um, but I do think that the logic of some of those early interactions is still with us. There's no reason – I mean that, that's what I took away from the, the work on this book is that there's no reason why things can't be like that within our lifetimes. Um, The U.S. and Iran share a lot of interests, uh, not just uh, cultural and political kinds of affinities, but also a lot of straightforward strategic interests in the region. Both countries want to see stability in Iraq, for example. Uh, Both countries are opposed to ISIS and sort of Sunni radicalism and jihadism, uh, whether it's the Taliban or whether it's Daesh, ISIS, any of these groups. Um, they could be working together on these, some, these kinds of challenges. And instead, they're working towards the same ends, but at each other's throat, but are kind of against each other, which is a really strange way of doing things, an unfortunate way of doing things. Um, so, yeah, I am, I am kind of optimistic.
0: You are optimistic. And uh, you speak a little bit about the region in which Iran is surrounded by uh, well, the former Ottoman Empire's territories up in the north, now Turkey, but also in the Persian Gulf region surrounded by Arab neighbors. Um, in your view as a historian, and I ask this question myself as someone who studied international relations, therefore I'm very, very keen to hear a historian's perspective of whether you believe that the region is amenable to an opening between the United States and Iran as such.
1: Well, uh, i think actually you you you, I, you probably know the answer to that question better than i do as an international relations uh, expert i think this is maybe beyond my beyond my abilities as a historian but i think that um you know i think that there's always a certain triangulation that takes place or or you know quadrangulation between all these different uh powers and uh interests whether it's the 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 saudis the gulf arab states the the israelis the russians the americans the iranians um you know we haven't we've never known a time when everybody just gets along in the middle east that hasn't well not in in the 20th and 21st centuries anyway um you know i i think that what tends to happen is a lot of horse trading but of friends and allies and enemies you know sort of you know, it was interesting to me, and, and, and Trita Parsi writes very well about this in his book, I mean, uh, how in the 1980s, uh, for example, the Israelis were trying to convince the Americans that they should uh, make friends with Iran, because at the time they felt that the big threat was from the Arab world, was from Saddam Hussein and from some of the more radical Arab regimes, and that Iran was a sort of tacit ally of the Israelis. This is despite the fact that it was right after the Iranian revolution, and when the, Iran was at its most radical, rhetorically, most radical kind of phase, um, but then when things changed and the Israelis entered a peace process of some kind with uh, the Arab world in the, in the 1990s, then everything changed and suddenly Iran was left on the sidelines as this kind of, uh, you know, bogeyman and kind of evil force. and all So a lot of this stuff is very tactical. And this is, I believe, still why uh, so many of the the sort of more conservative and pro-American Arab, Arab regimes uh, and you know, Israel are, are beginning to work together. Uh, because, you know, it's an easy way to, you know... It, their real fear is that the U.S. will uh, do a deal with Iran. That's what they're really afraid. Of. They're not actually afraid of an Iranian nuclear weapon because they know everybody knows that Iran is not actually interested in that. Um, what they're worried about is the idea of a closer relationship between Iran and the United States, uh, because that makes them more or that makes them less relevant uh, to the United States. It makes them less critical as allies. I mean, this is the kind of jockeying that takes place. It's it's and it's I'm oversimplifying, of course. Um, but I think in the end of, at the end of the day, I think every country in the region and every group in the region needs to be given a reason to uh, stop seeing everything as a zero-sum game, needs to be able to, uh, you know, uh, be given some incentive to, to join on with some sort of larger, peaceful, regional architecture. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it's a sort of Marshall plan for the Middle East. Or I don't think the U.S. has that in it anymore, quite honestly. But, you know, I think that Uh, In the absence of a a really clear, you know, uh, leadership, like we had, for example, in the early 1990s, you know, uh, after the end of the Cold War, a clear American leadership in the region. In the absence of that, you're going to get this kind of uh, this kind of jockeying for position. And and the U.S. is going to be used in some ways uh, as a kind of pawn in the midst of all these kinds of uh, games.
0: Thank you. We'd like to remind our audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called America and Iran. Uh, your book is uh, is a history book, and I want to take us back to history a bit, if I may. Um, you you speak yourself throughout the book as well as today about a cultural fascination between Americans and Iranians or the Persians at the time, so much so that at the beginning of your book, uh, you describe in, uh, in interesting, uh, very readable uh, and accessible prose how the mindset of Raja uh, Rajar king, Fatali Shah, at the time, uh, worked when he tried to conceive of America as this unknown land and would ask people, well, you know, the Europeans who would come to his court in Persia, Tell, tell me more about this unknown man. And then your book carries out through the 20th century and through the uh, enormous misunderstanding, especially since Iran's revolution between Iran's uh, current leaders and uh, U.S. leaders. And I wonder, in your view, how much of that cultural uh, mismatch and misunderstanding still prevails uh, in between the two nations?
1: Yeah, uh I think it's still there in places, but I think that uh, obviously the, the last 40 years has really changed everything. I think that, um, unfortunately, look, I, don't, you know, I think that actually one of the interesting things is that, you know, well into the 1950s, 60s, 70s, there was this kind of uh, uh, almost fantasy kind of approach between both countries. I would say that before 1953, at least, Iranians tended to look at the U.S. as this kind of idealized, this kind of John Wayne movies and, you know, cops and rubbers, police chases, you know, cowboys and Indians, you know. Uh, it was kind of exciting. It was kind of sexy. Uh, you know, and they didn't know much, much more about Iran, about, about the U.S. rather than that. Uh, the only other thing they knew was about the American schools uh, in Iran, which were run by Presbyterian missionaries, like Alborz School Tehran, for example. Uh, you know, that was their familiarity level with, Uh, The United States. And in fact, I've always been struck by this, you know, just um, just a couple of years before uh, the coup d'etat in 1953 in 1950, I believe it was summer of 1950 or 51. In the midst of all the nationalist rhetoric about the uh, oil nationalization crisis, Samuel Jordan died uh, in California. Uh, Jordan was a for 40 years. He had been the principal of the American school in Tehran and he was a beloved figure in Iran. And all of Iran, Tehran came to a standstill for his funeral. Uh, this was in the midst of the oil nationalization, just a couple of years before the CIA overthrew Mohammad Mossadegh. Right? Uh, that is the, still the kind of idealized way that, um, that Iranians looked at the United States. And this was, you know, nationalist, communist, religious I mean you know. um, so a lot was lost after that. Uh, for, for Iranians, it was never quite the same after that, especially after the 1960s and '70s when the U.S. gave more and more of its backing to the Shah's regime. But I think that Americans maintained a lot of that fantasy idea about Iran until the 1979 revolution. I was recently watching a documentary called Flame of Persia, which was narrated by Orson Welles in 1971, where it was a documentary about the Persepolis celebration, the 2,500-year 2, 2, uh, anniversary of the Iranian monarchy. Uh, the Shah had a, a big, famous kind of uh, uh, celebration in the middle of the desert where he invited all these kind of kings and queens and you know, foreign leaders and so on. Um, it was a very unpopular with Iranians at the time, actually, with many Iranians at the time, especially the left. But in the US, it was it's idealized. I mean, you look at that documentary and it's just, you know, it could almost have been made in the 1720s. It was still this kind of rhetoric about this kind of glamorous, glorious Persian kingdom. So, you know, Barbara Walters broadcast that Persepolis celebration by satellite uh, to 5 million Americans in 1971, right? That was still the the kind of fantasy world that we were living in right up until the revolution. Um, I think, you know, it exists in places here and there, but I think it's been so replaced by hatred on both sides since then. I think now the dominant American, you say Iran to Americans, they don't think about that. They don't think about Persian rugs and, you know, and, and these kinds of things. Uh, they think about really a lot of very, very negative ideas. And the same with with people in Iran, when they, when they talk about the United States, you know, they, they You know, the the image is very negative now.
0: Let's go back to the politics of the story, because you also touch on politics. And right before World War II, um, uh, you describe how even in in the course of uh, Iran's history between the first and second world wars, it tried to reach out to America as this third force, as an alternative power who could help Iran balance some of its uh, tense relations with the British and with the Russians. Um, now, we come to where we are today, with Iran still trying to bring the United States somehow on board with the idea of reaching in an agreement over its, the Iranian nuclear program with the United States. Um, in a way, uh, you know as, as well as I do that a lot of Iranians hope that with America on board, Iran can still balance its kind of tense moments of relations with other powers like the Russians, with the Europeans. Uh, Deep inside, many in Iran's government even believe that these governments would prefer silently to never see an opening, for example, between the U.S. and Iran so that they can retain an upper hand uh, with with Iran. So, um, to wrap this Sort of commentary, which I didn't mean it as a commentary altogether, I really mean to forward this as a question and ask you about the political importance of, of, of the relationship. Does it still matter despite the cultural mismatch? Uh,
1: yeah, I think it still matters. I think Iran, the Islamic Republic might say that, that it doesn't, but it does. At the end of the day, that's the most important. Uh, the tension that they feel with the Israelis, for example, doesn't actually matter to them as much as they don't feel threatened by the Israelis actually. Um, and uh, really, only well, the, the the one thing Iran needs more than anything um, is a certain level of just kind of respect and recognition and security. It's the one thing that it doesn't have because it doesn't really have allies. It doesn't. Have, it's very isolated. Very isolated because of sanctions, financially, uh, you know, in every other politically, in every way. Uh, you know, Russia and China are not allies of Iran. They're, 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 you know, friends of convenience from time to time on certain issues, but they're not like real concrete, hardcore allies. Uh, What Iran needs is to feel safe. The the Islamic Republic wants to feel that, you know, that's not being undermined, that the U.S. is not engaged in regime change, that, you know, you don't have all these, you know, American bases surrounding it. What Iran needs fundamentally is something that only the United States can provide. Which is that level of security guarantee uh, for the survival of the Islamic Republic? Um, now we can talk about all the kind of domestic issues, but but in, but fundamentally, just in terms of um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, just straight up national security strategy. Yeah, Iran di- is is smart and will diversify its strategy and look to China and you know, other countries, of course. Um, but there's no, there's still no substitute for a better relationship with America.
0: And you touch on a very sensitive and historically important topic that Iranians have somehow understood, its rather tumultuous relationship with the United States. That deep inside, they know that they need the Americans. They know that they need the United States. But a fundamental um, precursor to to needing someone is a, is a sense of cultural affinity. And are there, as one of our uh, audiences is asking, still any cultural contacts between Iran at, and the United States at a level that that matters? I mean, there are student exchanges that matter. But, but, but to your knowledge, how much of that is happening? And if not, how much of that can actually happen?
1: Well, it's very difficult. Uh, some of that was starting to happen very briefly in 2015 after the signing of the JCPOA. Some of that was happening very briefly Between 1997 and 2004, especially let's say, 98, 99, and 2004, uh, during the more – 2005, excuse me – during the more uh, reformist uh, administration of President Mohammad Khatami in Iran, uh, where there was a little bit of detente between the two countries. And you had things like wrestling matches and exchanges of scholars and students and tourists and so on. There was a little bit of that opening up after the nuclear deal was signed, but it was very quickly – you know, uh, obviously the, the plug was very quickly pulled on that when the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA. It is extremely difficult right now on a practical matter to have cultural exchanges because unless you're having a Zoom meeting, which actually is actually ironically weirdly one of the few areas where people can now, I mean, I mean, just, you know, I just did one last week with University of Tehran, and we did actually at the Middle East Center, which I'm I, um, executive director of at, at Penn, we did a historic event last uh, August, I believe it was, uh, the first public conversation be- about between Iranian and American experts and officials on the subject of the, of COVID-19. Uh, we got the former health minister of Iran, the head of Iran's national coronavirus task force uh, in conversation here with our uh, uh, director of, of Penn's coronavirus uh, center uh, and, and with a couple of other experts as well here in the U S um, that was a conversation we could do because it didn't involve any money. Uh, anytime there's a financial transaction, it's impossible because of the sanctions. There's simply no way. Uh, You you can't, you know, give somebody a a speaking fee or you can't, you know, there's nothing you can do. Um, So, weirdly, Zoom is one of the few things we, we now can do. I mean, as far as I know, there's still no law against talking to people in Iran. So we can still do that. But the kind of traditional cultural exchanges where you have tourists, you have students... You know, I have students come to me and say, oh, I want to go to Iran. To you know, I said, forget about it. You know, you know, I mean, there's just no way. I mean, how are you going to fund that? <laughs> you, know, how are you, going to, you know, you're going to have to drop out of Penn for a, you know, a year and then come back. It's, just, it's not going to be in the transcript. There's no way anything can be done formally. Um, uh, you know, all of those things are just extremely difficult right now because of travel bans, because of sanctions. The sanctions are so extreme. I think most Americans don't realize just how extreme these sanctions are. I'm never in the history. Have sanctions this severe been uh, placed on a country during peacetime it's just it's you know it's absolutely as- asphyxiating the iranian economy but also any ability for iran to interact with the outside world which is a shame because iran is still despite what you might think iran is actually punches way above its weight when it comes to things like scientific uh, publications you know engineering and you know, all kinds of stuff they have they have plenty to offer as well it's not a one-way street uh, but we're not able to take advantage of these kinds of uh, co- uh, cooperation unfortunately you, you know fingers crossed maybe soon we will but you know i'm not hugely optimistic i said earlier by the way that i was optimistic i meant to say that i'm idealistic there's a difference uh, <laughs> i'm actually very pessimistic <laughs> about uh, u.s iran relations but i'm idealistic
0: well we need at least to be either idealistic or optimistic and i'm glad you, you possess one of those qualities but talk- about these cultural exchanges, you describe, even I believe there's a whole chapter in your book titled Tashrifad, you describe uh, beautifully, actually, um, in prose that I enjoyed reading about how, for example, Iran's ambassadors um, would arrive in New York or Washington, D.C. and kind of feel like compared to the hospitality that the Iranian kings would extend you know, uh, the American ambassadors or head of legations in Iran, that that they would just kind of feel like, wow, America is so different than us. I mean, here we go, you know, the Shah would send his troops to to escort the American ambassador or, or, or representative and, You know, the Iranian would be greeted maybe by a State Department official, and that was about it, and also be at times even mocked in in newspapers over his mannerism or his misunderstanding of American culture. But even despite that, what's really interesting is that that very same Iranian ambassador leaves with a positive impression of America as this land that's different. Maybe it's interesting that it's not... Uh, self-possessed so much with the idea of Tashrifat. Maybe it has more to offer by way of um, human freedoms, that it come out in a natural way rather than, you know, in a way that has to be predefined by a whole societal uh, progression of culture. So, With that in mind, one of our uh, audiences asks uh, quite an interesting uh, question, and that is that you you do mention that Ivanians have this fascination with the Americans, despite it all, viewing it as somewhat maybe an anti-imperial force compared, say, to the British, but then what is the typical Iranian reaction if and when they should hear of stories like U.S. actions, you know, against Mexico and Spain historically or the Boxer Rebellion, the audience asks, or even just let, let's take the Black Lives Matter movement today? Um, I think that's quite an interesting question for us to hear the answer from uh, your perspective.
1: Yes, those are Yes, thank you for that. It's a great question. And uh, uh, there are so many directions I could go in with this. Uh, um, I I want to, before I forget, address the Black Lives Matter question, which is actually really interesting because I haven't had a chance to uh, say this in in other talks that I've given. Um, One of the very, very first books published in Persian about the United States uh, back in, I don't know, early 1800s sometime, I forget the exact date, actually touched on the issue of slavery and race relations in the United States. Uh, it said I came across a passage where they said, you know, people with dark hair are treated not as well as people with light hair and light skin in the United States. Uh, and they were already trying to explain to people uh, some of these uh, racial issues. Um, but uh, but in general, the, the larger question that you're that is being asked about uh, uh, sort of um, you know so, yeah what ha- what are some of the Amer- early 20th century I guess like boxer rebellion whatever. Um, so I haven't looked closely at that, but, what, but it is actually – one of the things I did find very striking is if you look at early 20th century America, Iranian newspapers, yeah, there are these moments where the U.S. surprises and disappoints Iranians. But that's what's so interesting. Like I came, and I was looking in the early 1950s in some of the nationalist newspapers in Iran, the in particular Bakhtar Amruz, which was a very pro-Mossad, pro-nationalistic uh, newspaper. Very anti-imperialist and so on—not leftist, but kind of you know central li- like liberal nationalist, you know, um, third-world liberationist kind of you know, newspaper and very very pro-Mosad yeah. um, And when they criticized the United States, it was so interesting to me. I, you know, they said things like, you know, maybe the U.S. the U.S. is kind of new to this, to the, they're they're inexperienced when it comes to international affairs. You know, maybe they're being misled by the British. You know, maybe they're not really fo- following their own values. This isn't the America we know. You know, it's so interesting, because the way they criticized Britain was completely different. <laughs> um, this is just two years, one year before the U.S. literally overthrew the Iranian government at the hands of the CIA. <laughs> they still believed this. They still had this idea that, it, no, this couldn't be. It couldn't be. Iran, America couldn't really be acting like this. Mossadegh himself, in the 1940s, in the late 1940s, as a, when he was a, a deputy in the parliament, in the Majlis. When he criticized Arthur Millspore, who was the American uh, financial advisor in Iran, he would say that, you know, you look at his speeches, they're very interesting. he say, I'm sure Americans wouldn't want to see one of their own, you know, treating Iran this way. You know, the Americans are good people. They, you know, there's a lot of that kind of language. It's so respectful and so disappointed, almost heartbroken, that the U.S. is not living up to its values because it doesn't make sense. It does not compute. This is, America's not supposed to be like this. As late as the early 1950s, that's how Iranians saw America, right? And I could give so many more examples of this, right? Um, It was just throughout the early 20th century, you see this. So, yeah, when there are moments when the U.S. is not living up to its values, there's a sense of real sadness and disappointment in Iran rather than anger. Now, that over time, over the 1960s, 70s, and beyond, that's changed. That's turned to anger. Uh, But there was a time when it wasn't like that. Um, and that is very interesting. And by the way, I love the – I appreciate you bringing up the anecdote about the first Iranian ambassador to the U.S. and the, the Tashrifat and the, all, of, all of that stuff. I think that's such great stuff, and I wish I had time to talk about it more because it is just – it's amazing. Uh, it, you know, the – yeah, the very first Iranian diplomat in the U.S., Hajj uh, Hossein Khan Nouri sadr Saltanen, also known as Haji Washington, to, by Iranians, he loved America. You look at his, his reports back to Tehran; they're unbelievable. This is in 1888. He said that uh, he said that he, America, who's just raving about its progress and you know, so all these things, saying you know this is so much more important of a country than Europe, than Vienna, than than, than Berlin, than London, and Paris. You know, forget those embassies. You know, we need to do more work here in Washington. Um, and you know, he even described America as the country where everything that that Allah and the Prophet Muhammad had envisioned had come true. I mean, that's how he described it, right? Uh, It was, uh, you know, he was fascinated by the concept of elections. He said, you know, I just met the president, and it's really strange. I just met Grover Cleveland, and he may not be president three months from now. There's an election. His his faith is in the hands of the American people. That was such an unusual form of government in 1888, uh, particularly for Iranians who were living in an absolute monarchy. Um, And he was really enchanted by that.
0: This is really fascinating. And uh, before I jump to the next question, I'd like to again once uh, remind our audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called America and Iran with Dr. John Qasminian. Um What you just described um, kind of uh, resonates for a lot of people who live in America at the time. right now, uh, excuse me, and and watch Iran. And a couple of our questions touch on this topic. There seems to be uh, a lot of divisions about how to approach America. You know, some of one uh, one of our audiences says, "Well, why should Iran even bother with America if China is going to be be a world power in a few years and America's role in the world is going to be far more marginal? Um, why shouldn't Iran is just embrace relations with uh, with the Chinese instead of America?" Another uh, member of our audience says, "Well, you know, um, you talk about science and technology being still advanced in Iran despite sanctions. Why shouldn't Iran is just?" go after what they believe uh, they can do and forget about America in some sense. And there's another question from our audience saying, well, in the end of the day, um, there are a lot of people, including the Iranian-American community, well, not a lot, I don't know what their numbers are, but there are some, both Americans and Iranians here, that believe that the sanctions must continue because they are hoping that the Islamic Republic of Iran will go away. So um, this really uh, is, is a I think, a broad spectrum of questions, but one which a historian like yourself might be able to wrap up for us through, through a response.
1: Yes, uh, I appreciate that. I think the first question I think I more or less answered, you know, I don't, you know, why, uh, you know, why Iran still needs America. Uh, the second one was, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Why? Yeah, this whole question of why doesn't Iran just kind of do its own thing, you know, progress scientifically, et cetera. Yeah, it it is, and it has, and that is what they're doing. And in fact, this is one of the irony of sanctions is that in some ways it always has a silver lining. It always strengthens a country's ability to stand on its own two feet, which ironically (laughs) was one of the great philosophical, ideological, motivating forces of the Iranian revolution was the whole idea of standing on its own feet, not taking orders from other countries, <inaudible> right, neither East nor West, Islamic Republic, this idea of, of being not just neutralist in the Cold War, but actually just really independent of everybody. Um, and it's one of the really weird ironies that actually American sanctions are probably making that easier for Iran than ever. In some, I mean, I, I don't want to imply that the sanctions have not been painful. They've been extremely painful and very, very difficult for Iran and for ordinary Iranians especially. <clears throat> But as we've seen in other cases, like South Africa in the 1980s, they also create an ability to, you know, to develop homegrown uh, uh, industries and talent and, and, and scientific progress and, and so on. In fact, this has been very much the rhetoric of the Supreme Leader of Iran and the Iranian government has been, you know, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei has talked a lot about a resistance economy. He calls it the resistance economy the idea of let's build our own damn economy in the hell with them, you know, like we'll just do it ourselves, you know, like, why not? Well, yes, but of course that only goes so far. I mean, the world is highly interconnected. And if you're not able to make banking transactions, if you're not able to buy the raw goods that you need uh, to produce things or, or, or exchange have scientific exchanges with your colleagues in other countries, you know, there's only so much you can, there's only so far you're going to be able to get. Um, but Iran's doing what it can. um, and then the, th- the third question, I think, was the idea that there are many Iranians uh, in the diaspora who support the idea of sanctions because they think it will somehow bring down the Islamic Republic. <sighs> um, it won't. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, this, it doesn't matter what you actually think about the Islamic Republic. It doesn't matter whether you like it or dislike it or uh, are somewhere in between. You have to be honest about some things. Uh, the Islamic Republic is not a house of cards. It's not about to collapse overnight. Under you know, The idea that if you just suffocate the people enough that they'll somehow rise up against their leaders, that's not going to happen. And if it does, you're not going like, to like what replaces it, uh, the kind of chaos. I mean, I think most Iranians understand that, which is a large part of why they haven't uh, risen up against the Islamic Republic. But it's not the only reason, and I know this is a, sometimes an unpopular opinion, Uh, But there are many reasons why the Islamic Republic has survived for 40 years. Uh, There is to some extent, you know, a certain level of of repression and and police state violence and so on that, that, that keeps forces of opposition uh, under control. Uh, But that's not the only reason I think anyone will tell you, any historian and any political scientist will tell you that by itself, you know, repression alone doesn't keep someone in power for 40 years. Eventually that breaks down. Um, You know, it's not a, These guys, whether you like them or not, have not stayed in power for 40 years without any allies anywhere in the world, with huge, huge, never-ending efforts by the world's greatest superpower to undermine them and to kind of try to bring down the whole system. And they're still there. And they're not there just because uh, they put people in prison who disagree with them. Uh, That's – no. No. You know, it's uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. The, the The system really does have a certain level of genuine support. Not, I'm not suggesting that it's universal or even a majority, but there is a a sizable percentage of the Iranian population that has no problem with an Islamic republic. That maybe wants to see it reform or change or uh, meet the needs of needs of its citizens better or provide maybe greater personal freedoms. But you don't you don't have there's not a huge appetite for revolution in Iran. You may get angry at me for saying that. And that's fine. Go ahead and direct your frustration at me. But that's the reality. You know, if you actually go to Iran, and by the way, most people who, who believe this idea that oh, sanctions are going to somehow bring down the Islamic Republic have never been to Iran or have not been to Iran since 1979. Um, I think that's almost, you can almost map that perfectly on a graph. I mean, it, it, the correlation is very, very clear. If you actually go to Iran... Uh, you don't hear a huge appetite for revolution, for, for overthrowing the whole system. You know, you hear people very angry and frustrated about the price of bread, the price of fish, uh, the un- the corruption or the unresponsiveness of politicians to their needs, uh, or the foreign policy that's too antagonistic with the West. But guess what? You're going to hear that anywhere in the world. You know, and I'm not suggesting that it's not worse than Iran. It probably is. Uh, but is it enough to, to bring down this, this whole system? No, I mean, I... I Again, you may not like hearing that, but the problem is if you want to deal with Iran realistically, if you, even if you want to defeat Iran and beat the Islamic Republic, you have to start by understanding things as they are, not as you want them to be, uh, because you're not going to be very successful. Because guess what? If you really believe that the Islamic Republic is going to collapse because of a few sanctions or even a lot of sanctions, then you end up pursuing... So a strategy very similar to the one that the Trump administration has pursued for the last four years, the so-called maximum pressure strategy, because you really believe that just with enough pressure, you're going to bring it all down. Well, guess what? It didn't work. And actually, it backfires. Um, You know, so I think that if you're really trying to win, then at least be sophisticated, be savvy, don't put the wishful thinking out of it uh, and think about how to deal with uh, the forces that are actually there.
0: Well, we here at the Commonwealth Club want to hear your views. And um, I have time only for one last question, unfortunately, and it will be a quick one. You talk about a sophistication needed to better comprehend the nuances of the U.S.-Iran relationship. Throughout your book, you touch on instances of it, you know, when the Is- Islamic Republic in Iran happened. Um, even we know that under the Iran's um, President Khatami, he, He came to America and talked about America as the land of the Puritans. Uh, You say in your book that even before the revolution, and relations are still tense, but in your book, you describe many instances where relations were also tense even before the revolution and historically also tense. So, in your view, uh, from a historic perspective, are America and Iran moving perhaps? In in somewhat parallel directions of of maturing and and maturation in which they eventually will just have to come to terms with who they are and what they are the way it is.
1: That would be my very strong suggestion to policymakers in both countries: uh, is is get past the ideology, get past the zero sum games, get past the sort of need to have total victory and capitulation of your enemy, and just actually you know, mature a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it. Uh, I think that in many ways the Islamic Republic did that in the 1990s uh, and and uh, into the 2000s. Uh, the U.S., I think, seemed to go in the opposite direction. I think in the 1980s, Iran was much more the problem. It was much more radical, much more anti-American, much more uh, difficult to deal with, actually. Uh, but the U.S., you know, the U.S. was actually trying secretly to sell weapons to Iran and you know, Reagan was doing this. Um, I think in the last twenty to thirty years it's kind of gone a little bit in the other direction i think u s has become more ideological and more inflexible, uh, I have to say unfortunately, and has made it very easy for iran uh or you know to be you know to kind of take the upper hand in a lot of situations uh, whereas Iran has at least demonstrated itself shown itself to be more flexible whether they are or not that hasn't been tested that much. The one time it was truly tested was it actually was successful they signed a, the j c p o a you know but what has happened is so many great opportunities have been missed that it has left an impression, maybe not in the U.S., but in many other parts of the world, it's left an impression that Iran is being the flexible party and the U.S. is being the difficult ideological party. And that's unfortunate. I don't like to see the U.S. shooting itself in the foot like that. Um, but that, you know, that is a, 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 an unfortunate reality. By the way, you mentioned that relations have not always been good, even in the old days. I, you reminded me of – maybe just end on this because it's kind of a funny – Anecdote. A lot of people think that the, only, the, the first time the U.S. and Iran broke off ties was in 1979, or 1980, I guess, uh, April of 1980. Um, but it's not. It's actually the first time was in 1936. Uh, it was uh, because of a speeding ticket uh, that was issued to the Iranian ambassador, Kafar Jalal, in uh, a small town called Elkton, Maryland. Uh, it, broke, it, it precipitated a sort of scuffle between the local police officer and the ambassador's sh- American chauffeur. And and the ambassador's wife and that little tiny spitz spitz lap dog uh, that apparently attacked the police officer and it turned into this whole media story uh, that embarrassed Iran so much that uh, Reza Shah actually uh, downgraded and breaks, more or less, in effect broke off ties with the United States for three years uh, over this. So you know it hasn't always been rosy and perfect. It's you know there's lots of lumps and bumps. Um, you know but uh, you. Know, it's a rich and fascinating uh, relationship uh, that, frankly, I could have written about five more books on. The book originally was twice as long as it is now. So you can thank my publisher for forcing me to cut it down a little bit. There's a lot of really great stuff that got left out, a lot of really great anecdotes from the early history, which I think is actually super interesting. So I hope you check it out. And I'll Inshallah, I hope so. Uh, I also want to say if anybody didn't get a chance to ask their question um, – uh, I have a website, uh, johngaz.com, where you can uh, contact me also by Twitter or Instagram. I'm happy to, to engage with uh, further uh, Q&A if anyone's interested.
0: Thank you very much for this information. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Razvignan. For your presentation, I'm Banakshah Kanoush, your moderator for today. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.